Good morning, family. Hope everyone is having a good Sunday morning so far. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for worship here at River Valley Community Church as we continue our series through the book of Acts. But before we dive into that and before we dive into uh, doing that, I just want to do something a little different. Is uh, uh, So COVID cases are surging and um, we have members in the hospital right now. Uh, good news for one of them, David Young, uh, at least last I heard, was planned to be released on Monday. Um, and so th- we praise God for that. But Joette Sykes is going on the ventilator. And so we need to keep on praying for her. And <clears throat> let's uh, take a time where we can pray together right now just for the whole situation as well as particularly for uh, Joette and her family. So join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are, that we can cling to you no matter what is happening in this world. And Lord, we look around and we see such uh, troubling times and and people um, passing away and people in the hospital and, and just society so different than what it was. And we had such high hopes that we were over it and moving forward and And so, Lord, I just pray for this whole situation, our country and for our community and for all the hearts and minds that are being affected right now. Lord, we pray for everyone who's in the hospital um, ill, and we pray for all the families who are wondering what is going to happen to their loved ones. And we we pray that they can find solace in you and that you can use this to pull them towards you and understanding who you are and your great love. And Lord, in particular, we pray for uh, David, as he is recovering, we pray that there, his recovery continues in a good path. And we lift up Joette. And we pray for her as she, as she is uh, being going to be helped to breathe by, by this great miracle of uh, modern technology. And we just pray, though, that you can continue to heal her. That you can, that, that you can bring wellness back to her. Um. And Lord, we pray for her whole family and for her as they are experiencing this and dealing with this. We pray that they can lean on you and find comfort and peace in you. Uh, Lord, we love you. We seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So (coughs) we are continuing Uh, going through the book of Acts, as we see the church expanding, as we see God moving in that, that, uh, that early church, and we trust that God is moving the same way he's doing now. And when we do that, we see something about humans. We see that humans are storytellers. Since humans have existed, we have told stories. We've sat around the campfire and told big fish stories. We've told stories about the crazy event that happened to us. We love to tell stories. It's even been said that you can have a society with not the technological advances that we have, but you'll never find a society that does not tell stories. Because that's who we are. We're storytellers because we are made after the image of the best storyteller. But we tell stories. We tell stories to explain why the world is the way it is and why the world, how the world came about. If you think about, you probably know countless kind of myths or stories you've heard about how the world came about or how facets of this world came about. We tell stories kind of expressing our longings 
and our hopes and our dreams, kind of expressing what we, 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 we uh, yearn for. We even express stories, tell stories to our children, kind of lifting up some virtues, kind of steering them in the direction we want them to be and kind of condemning other virtues. We don't want them to be that. We are storytellers. And we're still storytellers. That's not just ancient, man, but even now, we are storytellers. Thinking, think, just think about the endless content that you can stream through a screen. So many surfaces and platforms, and all of those episodes, movies, and shows are telling stories. They're pulling you into their story and trying to build this world and this view of humanity and this view of the world, and they're telling a story. And what's amazing is that when humans tell stories, when we communicate our hopes and our dreams and what we think the world is, we actually are expressing little echoes of the grand story, of God's story, that we can see echoes of redemption as we, we, we long for someone to save us. We see echoes of, of the brokenness of the world as we express our pain and our hurt. We tell these stories, and they're just little echoes of the grand story of God. And as we tell these stories, it shows us that we're trying to grope and find meaning through the stories that we tell. And that's what we see in Acts 17. When Paul arrives in Athens, he sees a city telling a whole bunch of stories to themselves, trying to find meaning, but, all, but just finding false stories in this world. So you have your Bibles? You can turn to Acts chapter 17, and we'll start. We'll pick up our uh, story in Acts uh, 17, chapter, uh, verse um, 16, sorry. If you don't have your Bibles, don't worry. It's going to be on the screen as we walk through this. Now remember, we had just, we had just heard last week about how Paul and Silas and his crew were kind of chased out of Thessalonica, and they were in Berea, and then all of a sudden there was, those people had traveled the so many miles to find them, and so they, they take Paul and they put him on a boat, and they say, get out of here, and they send them off to Athens. And so this is where the story picks up, is that he's now in Athens, and he's waiting for his team to catch up with him. And it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city, that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also in the altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some as your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damarius, and others with them. So how do we wrap our minds on what's going on in this last part of Acts 17? We probably could express it in many different ways. There's some themes you can pull out there. But I would summarize the message with this know god's story to understand your story that we all have stories and we're these stories that we're seeking to explain the world and these, these stories that we use to kind of explain our life and and we all have these and the athenians had them and actually had so many of them the whole city was full of all these stories as they looked to these idols to explain their life and to explain the world and they're looking at these these stories after stories but they're all false stories and not giving them any hope and into the midst of this, Paul brings the better story, the true story, the story of who God is to them. And he's basically saying this story is not just the story of God. It's not just the story of who he made us to be, but this story encompasses all of our stories. And that we cannot truly even know ourselves until we know who God is and know his story. He's saying to them, know God's story to understand your story. And so this passage starts off in Athens as, as Paul has arrived there and he's by himself and he's looking around at the city. And I love how the text says he looks around and it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw a city full of idols. He looked around and he saw a city just chocked full of idols and he got ticked off. He looks around the city, and it's funny because we know from other sources that Athens probably had a population around now of 10,000 people in Athens, but it's said to have had 30,000 idols in the city, like public idols set up for worship. And I love the language in the text that says he looks around and the city was full of idols, but when you look at that, it really carries the sense of the city was under idols. It's almost like Luke, the author, was saying the city was so full of idols, the idols were smothering the city. The whole city was under them. And there's all these idols set up. They had huge ones, like the statue of, to Athena that was, had a spear tip that people were said when the sun hit it right, they could see it from 40 miles away. They had the whole pantheon of, the, of Olympus set up where people could worship as they saw fit to these different idols. These idols who were made of stone and gold and silver in grandiose ways, they were so uh, the, um, intent on um, worshiping these idols, they even made idols to gods they didn't 
even know, as Paul points out, as they made an altar to the unknown God. And Paul sees this, and he gets mad. He's provoked in his spirit. Why would Paul get mad when he looked at Athens and, and sees all these idols? Because he looks upon these people, people made in the image of God who are now fashioning images of false gods out of their own imagination, and he sees people who are being led astray by lies. He sees people who are being led astray by falsehoods. He sees people who are caught up in the story of the world that's only going to lead to more wickedness or more license to sin, only going to lead to more brokenness in this world who are going to be left without hope, left without redemption because they're following falsehoods. And he gets mad. It's not like he's mad at the Athenians. He's mad at these lies that are being told. He's mad at these idols that are being propped up And he's ticked off because he knows while all these idols kind of show that the Athenians are trying to find something to fill that spiritual void all humans have, since all humans are made to worship God, that they're still empty because they're trying to find that in empty, dead idols. So he's mad. And he was provoked to action. I love that because it's saying his, he was provoked in his spirit when he saw all these idols. And what's the next sentence it says? He says, so, so he went into the synagogue and he reasoned with them and he reasoned with the devout persons. And then he went to the marketplace and he reasoned with anyone who would have ears. He talked to him because he knew that he had to be at work. He was provoked to action. He saw these idols and he knew people had to hear the gospel. And in this dark city, people had to know who Jesus Christ was. So he was provoked to action. And we should be the same way. We should be provoked to action when we see a world caught up in lies and falsehoods going astray from Christ. Well, you might say, well, America doesn't have idols. I mean, we have a TV show, or as it's still on, American Idol, but we don't really have idols. Right? We don't set up these huge statues and worship him. We don't have a statue to Athena that people can see from miles off. We don't have those things. And yeah, it's true. We don't build these huge statues to these you know, gods from Olympus. That would be easier to recognize. When, I, when we travel to India, you know, it's really easy to recognize idol worship in India because there's an idol set up in a small little temple. And you're like, oh, that's probably not God. There's no probably about that. So that's not God. We know that's not God. You know, when we traveled to India, we, I think we caught in maybe just the beginning of a festival for where they were setting up all these aisles and they had these like little tent temples on the street where they were playing music. So we just caught a little bit of it. But it's crazy to see people really spending 24-7 playing music, doing stuff with these, these statues. And you can look around and you see this towering statue of Buddha or something like that. That's clearly to see, okay, that's, an idol. But here we take good things and we make them God of our lives. And we make them idols for us. And it's probably more insidious because it's the good things. And no one's going to call you out for, you know, pursuing good things. But we take those good things and we make them the end all of what our, our life is, is supposed to be. 
It becomes our God, that we work towards those ends and we, we hold those as first importance. And so we take our jobs and we say, this is going to find me, this is going to give me security, this is going to make me who I am. And so we pursue that and we put ourselves in it. We even take our family and say, man, if my family's doing good, then that's what's going to make me. And we put these things on a pedestal. We take sports and we say, man, this thing is, I'm going to worship at this. We don't call it worship, we call it cheering and being there and spending our afternoons practicing and at the games all the time, but we take these things and we just give all of our time and energy to it. We take entertainment and we worship at the screen for hours on end. We take all these things and we take, give our time and our devotion to it, setting up these things. that Some are really good, in the, but they are not designed to hold the weight of our hopes and expectations. They're not our God. But yet we do that, and we see the world around us doing that, believing these lies that make them put their hope on these temporary things and pursue it with all of who they are. And when we see that, we need to be provoked to action, like Paul when we see the world pursuing things not of Christ, we need to be provoked and reason as he did with them and beg them to see who Christ is, beg them to see who God is and know him so that they might too see the hope and redemption that they can have through Jesus Christ. We need to be provoked for action and pursue them with the better story of who God is. Because once they know God's story, they will understand their own story. Know God's story to understand your story. Paul is saying that, and we need to say that to other people as well. But Paul's action, his being provoked to action and now reasoning in the, the synagogue and in the marketplace, it causes a conflict of ideas. That is, as he's in the marketplace speaking most likely to uh, the, the Greek people there, uh, some, some philosophers or camps of philosophers come and approach him. It says the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers start coming and talking to him. And the Epicureans, just fairly short, these are people who believed, they weren't short, just very shortly to give you a summary of, I mean, it could have been short. I'm sure there's people of all sizes in the Epicurean camp. <laughs> but a short summary, just to what they believed, is that these Epicureans were philosophers who believed that the gods might have been involved, but they're now distant. They don't care about humanity anymore. Therefore, they think chance ruled. And they also believed that the end of, um, of the chief end of humanity was just pleasure, because death is the end. Then inversely, you got the Stoics, a different camp, a different people who followed a different kind of philosophy, and they actually even believe in the gods, for they were pantheists. They believed everything was divine. And because of that, they were kind of fatalistic. They, they believed in blind, impersonal fate. And so there, because of that, they were apathetic, and they kind of didn't really want to, uh, they taught kind of detachment from the world. And so Paul is speaking, and he's speaking the gospel to these people who come from very different worldviews and backgrounds, and they can't really understand what he's saying, so they call him a babbler. And some people are like, well, maybe, maybe he's, just, he's just preaching foreign divinities, but they really call him a babbler because they can't understand what he's saying. It's funny because this word babbler literally means seed picker. And it's, in other places in the Bible, it's actually translated seed picker. 
But to, to uh, call someone a seed picker, a babbler, was basically like, this guy has no ideas of his own. He's just picking up ideas from other people and just regurgitating them for us. They're kind of discounting what he's saying. They're saying he's just not saying anything of importance. That he's just babbling away. But the irony is that Luke, the author of Acts, kind of turns this right back on these philosophers. Because in verse 21, these people who called Paul a babbler, it says this of them. It says, Now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would, uh, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul wasn't the babbler. They were. They spent all their time, I'm assuming free time, sitting around and just telling stories of something new. They didn't care whether it was true or not. They didn't care whether it had an import for their life. They just wanted to tell and hear something new. They literally were just looking for something to talk about. They were the babblers. But the, the reality is this is not too different from our own times. For there are so many people who just want to hear something new. That they, they don't even think about whether it's true or not or how far-fetched it could be. They just want to hear something new that can tickle their ears or maybe interest them for a little bit as they go down rabbit holes on, on social media or they you know, dive into uh, um, you know, the Internet and they just want to hear something new. Now, there's nothing bad about hearing new ideas or philosophies. That's great. But there is something bad when we just want to hear something new to the exclusion of actually evaluating whether it's true or not. Because these Athenians were just sitting around babbling about new stories. They weren't really concerned whether it was new or not, or it was true or not, even if they had a concept of what is truth. But we can be the same way. We just want to hear other things and people don't care whether it's true or not. And we should have open, open minds to have ideas to have new ideas, but we should evaluate it by what's true to see whether we should listen to that or not. I love a quote by G.K. Uh, Chesterton, who's a Christian writer from the 1900, early 1900s, and he had a way with words, and he said this, Merely having an open, mouth, uh, open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shed it again on something solid. Basically, why should we have open mind? That we evaluate something and if it's true, we hold on to that. That's what we need to do. Is that We need to, as we talk to people who are just looking for something new in our day and age, actually bring up things that are true so that they can shut their open minds on the truth of who God is and know him. And into this conflict of ideas, as we see Paul do and as we see that we should be doing in our lives, we need to bring the better story of God, because you know God's story to understand your story. So they take so they take Paul. Paul presents this better story of who God is because they take him and say, "Hey, we want to hear more of this." Even though they just called him a babbler, they're like, "Hey, you fit in. Let's go." And so they bring him to the uh, Areopagus, which is literally the the Council of Aries or the Mars Hill. You might have heard it called. This is a, a place where these new ideas were presented and people had debates and there was a, a big intellectual kind of philosophical um, discussion board in person as they, they hashed these ideas out. And so they say, hey, Paul, come here and talk to us in this 
place. And so he goes, and standing before all these people, he presents the true story, the better story of who God is. A story that contradicts all the stories of the idols that no doubt surrounded him as he was speaking. A better story that that came into conflict with the empty philosophies that these men were believing. And he's speaking the story with the hope that they would see who God is and respond to him. Because he tells the story of God and with God all of humanity. When you look at his story, we can see two kind of aspects. We see the message he he is communicating, but we also see the method and how he does it. Well, let's look at what the message that Paul speaks to these Athenians is. He starts off with God. He says, our God, the creator, the, the, the guy who made it all, this God, he's not like your idols. He starts with God to make a very distinct break. He says, he's not like your idols. Your idols were carved from stone and silver and gold and came from the imagination of men, but our God made all. He is our creator God. He was there. And not only that, but he is personal. He's involved in our lives. He, is, he loves us. And not only that, but he ha- is bigger than we could possibly imagine because he doesn't even need us. He doesn't live in temples like your idols. He doesn't need to be served by you like your idols. But he is in himself God. He starts with God in bringing in uh, the view of, of who God is into conflict and correcting these philosophers. He's correcting the, the Epicureans who thought that, that the gods were distant and didn't care. He says, no, God is here. He's present. He made us and he sustains us. He's correcting the Stoics saying, who didn't believe there was a personal God. No, this is their God. He's our creator. He's personal. Not all is divine. There's a distinct difference between God and what is made. He's correcting them and showing God is truly bigger than they possibly could imagine. But after he talks about God, he moves directly to humanity. That humanity was made through one man, Adam, even though he says that, and, and that God allotted the periods and boundaries. Basically, God is involved with the, how humanity has spread across this earth, and that God is involved in the government of man, and that God is involved in man's personal lives and individual level as well as big levels. And he's when he's talking about humanity and, it's, and, it's, and how God cares for humanity and watches over humanity, again, he is illustrating how life has meaning because God made us and is with us and is directing us. That against the Epicureans that look to pleasure as the end, is saying no, that serving God is the end. And against a blind personal faith that the Stokes believed, he's saying no, there's a personal God who's with us, directing us, and that we have a purpose beyond what we can see here. And so we don't just pursue pleasure and we don't just get apathetic, but we know God for meaning. Paul defines who humanity is. He defines and, and, and contradicts and corrects these false stories of the idols. That Paul looks around and says, even though you're, you're struggling and groping to understand who God is through this altar to the unknown God, you're foolish to think that humans could actually make a God out of stone or gold or silver. He's like, this think for a second. If we're made in God's image, as your own poets attest, if we're his offspring, as your own poets kind of say, and we're greater than these stone things, how could these stone things be God? For God is greater than us, 
And so he points at the foolishness of trying to worship something that someone carved in their backyard. It's ridiculous, he says. He might not use that word, but he says it. And then he goes on to how they need to respond. He says, listen up, God has given times where he has not, where he has allowed this to happen, but now he calls for all people to repent. All people need to come to know who he is because he's going to judge all the world through this man who he has appointed, who has raised from the dead. And guess what? He doesn't say it in the text, but we know he probably was expanding upon this speech. And he's saying, this is Jesus Christ. This is the guy who God has set up to judge the whole world. This is the person who he raised from the dead. This is the one who is showing us who he is through this person of Jesus. And we need to know him to be right with God. Of course, when he gets to a resurrection of the dead, they cut him off. They kind of say, hey, come back tomorrow. We can talk about this a little bit more. But they kind of, others mock him. But it's interesting, just like in every place the gospel is preached, we see how people respond differently. And some believed. Some believed in what he was saying. We see Dionysus, a guy of the uh, Areopagus uh, of that council, he believed, as well as a woman and some other leading men. And Paul, preaching this message of the better story of who God is, of who he made humanity to be, and how we can come back to him through Jesus, the man God appointed, is presenting the building blocks of the gospel and, and presenting this better story, and some respond to it. That's the message Paul preached, the better story of who God is. It's far better than any idols we can make or any stories we can come up with. But I also love how he did it. His method, you might say. For he starts off by building that common bridge with them. He kind of gives them, hey guys, I know you're religious. I saw the altar to the unknown God. I'll give you some props there. You're looking for something, but I'm going to now tell you what you're looking for. I love that because he's building a bridge. He didn't come into him and say, you guys are idiots. You guys are bowing down before statues. That's, that, I don't understand that. No, he says, hey, what you're looking for, you're looking for it pretty stupidly and wrongly, but what you're looking for, I'll tell you where it is. I'll tell you who it is. And so he's building that bridge with them. He doesn't just start blasting away, but he's speaking in a way that they would listen to. He also is using uh, quotes from um, poets, from Greek poets, he uses two different quotes from these Greek poets, um, really using sources they would respond with, but showing, hey, these Greek poets that you probably know, they are speaking that truth, that actually they un they're not speaking it, and they didn't know what they were speaking when they spoke it, but they're speaking this truth of how we are kind of built in the image of God. He's using sources they would know. And he changes his method for this audience. If you read back through Acts and every time you see Paul speak with people, what does he do? He gives a master class in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and showing how it's fulfilled in Jesus. And now standing before these Greeks, what does he do? He doesn't do that because that would have been lost on them. 
These are Greek philosophers. They don't know the Old Testament. And so he speaks in a way they understand. They have been telling stories. They've been listening to something new. Let me tell you a better story. And he, using not scripture, but using these general terms, kind of builds the whole picture of what scripture testifies to. And he presents the picture and story of who God is and who he made us to be. And he does all this way so that they could understand he speaks in ways that they would listen to, that they could relate to, that they would understand. And we need to do the same. That when we come to people and we're speaking to people, first of all, we need to know the message of the gospel. It's such a way that we can be like Paul and go big, thousand-foot kind of view of it and say, this is the story of God and how he made humanity, and we fly away and how he's bringing us back. And we need to be able to communicate the story of the gospel to people so that they can understand it and listen to it and respond to it. But we also need to do it in ways that they relate to. And we don't use words that they don't understand and we don't use stuff that they might not be able to grasp, but we, we come to where they are and we speak in winsome ways to appeal to who they are so that they can see who Christ is and respond to him and be moved along that progress of knowing him and responding to him. It all happens when we're telling people that if you want to know who you are, you have to know who God is. So know God's story to understand your story. So have you been gripped by God's story? Have you seen his love and his beauty in a way that kind of captures your imagination and pulls you along, that fills your heart, that when you understand God's story, it fills your heart and you can see that you have these longings and desires, but ultimately they can find their fulfillment in who God is? When we're gripped by God's story, something happens. We realize something. We realize that all of our life, all of what we do, day by day, is being woven in to the grandest story ever and that we are part of what God intends for this world and that he's using our stories to now tell and spread his story. That when we understand God's story, our life all of a sudden makes so much more sense. We understand our longings. We understand why we have pain. We understand why we have hope and what we're looking for. When we understand God's story, we understand ourselves so much better. I love how um, Nancy uh, Guffrey, who's an author, put it like this. There's a story, a story that is found in the pages of the Bible, from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation that shapes and defines where I came from, why I am the way I am, what my life is like day to day and what is ahead of me in the future. It is this story that explains my deepest joys as well as the empty places where contentment can be elusive. It is this story that explains my drive to be somebody, somebody and my sensitivity to feeling like a nobody. It explains what makes me cry and why I can laugh. This story explains my desire to look good, my craving for the good life, my longing for home and security and so much more. And whether you know it or not, this same grand story, the story found in the 66 books of the Bible, shapes the world you live in, who you are, and what you want to. That's why you and I need to know this story. It's where we find the answers to our questions about what really matters now and into eternity. This story has the power to change everything about our story. 
I love that because it's, she's basically saying in a much better way, know God's story to understand your story. That when we know God's story, when we see who God is, if we know how he's worked, we can understand who we are. And better yet, when we know God's story, we can look upon this dark world and we can see the lies of this world for what they are. We can see how they have led so many astray, astray, even sometimes us astray. And because we know God's story, we can now speak God's truth against them. First and foremost to ourselves as we're tempted by these other stories that might take us and give us momentary pleasure, but ultimately lead us astray from who God is and what he wants for us. But then we can speak that to other people who are lost in those stories and need to hear who God is. That when we know God's story, we can present to someone the true story, the best story, the story of that there is a personal God who made everything. And he made it good. The story of this God who loves us intently, that even when we messed up and humanity spit in his eye and went astray, even then, in the brokenness that ensued, this God loved us and pursued us. That he literally moved heaven and hell and wove history in such a way that his glory was magnified and people could find hope in him. This story that he loves us so much that why we are still sinners, why we're still rebels, why we still have no love for him in our hearts, he sends his son to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, and now to reign for us, that we could have hope if we just know him. This is the story. This is the grand story of our cosmos, the grand story of our world, a story that encompasses all of us. And when we know that story, we understand who we are, and we can share it to all who need to hear. Know God's story to understand your story. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much For your word, that we can read your word and know you, that we can respond to it, that we can see the truth of who you are. The truth of this story that is displayed through your word as well as is displayed in part through nature. And so, Lord, I ask that you continue to guide us, continue to grow us through your word. That you can make us at this church uh, uh, pursue you through your word and know you through your word and grow and that we can grow together and we can lean together and that we can we can be versed in this story in such a way that we can easily communicate it to all who would have ears to hear that we can be so drenched in this story that we cannot help but share it with other people that we cannot help but care so much that we need to speak the truth of who you are to all that we know. Lord, we pray for everyone who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We pray that we can be used by you to do that, that we can be used by you to share the gospel with them. We pray that this church can be a place that people can come in who don't know the gospel and hear it and respond to it and then grow in your ways. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, let's stand. Let's sing out to the one true God. <laughs>